full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. I had a lot of yelling matches, and I'm pretty good at making a case for myself. So yeah, I yelled right back. I said, yeah, half of these people are probably going to be gone, and I'm still going to be here because the people that work with me are going to work with me for the next 20, 30, 40 years. Born in Honduras, grew up above her parents' Flint, Michigan grocery store, paid for college by waitressing and painting dorm rooms. Today, she is ranked among 16 advisors who have been on the Barron's America's Top Women Advisors list every year since its start in 2006. Her firm manages about a billion in client assets. Dalal Solomon, this is your life. Stay with us. This week's episode is made possible by me, Robin Farzad, who'd love to announce to you that Full Disclosure presents our first concert live at Richmond's historic National Theater, Full Disclosure Live with Nada Surf, one of my favorite bands, November 10th at the National in RVA, an evening with the band who's been around for 25 years, has been an unbelievable entrepreneurial story of success, ecstasy, getting dumped by their record label. Managing to kind of claw back and raise money to burn their follow-on CD, it is an incredible story. In fact, many stories. Hear the stories, then hear the music. Full disclosure live with Not A Surf at the National. Get your tickets at facebook.com slash fulldradio. You can go to the National's website. You can go to notasurf.com. Definitely join us. Tickets are going fast. Joining me in studio is Dalal Solomon. She is founder, co-founder of Solomon Ludwin, which started back in 2009. Has it been 10 years already? This firm totes about a billion dollars in assets. As I said before, she's consistently ranked among 16 advisors who have been on the Barron's America's top women advisors list every year since it started in 2006. She's also ranked in Forbes and the FT, though you never seem to crave attention. I have to beg you to come on my show. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing well, Robin. Thank you. Thanks for having me. No, it's always a joy to have you on. I passed by this location. I was like, we have this national gem right here in the RVA, but I got I to gotta come by and drive by and throw little pebbles at the window. <laughs> I was like, hey, Dalal, will you come back on? And I said by way of, um, you know, you've been in this business now. Has it been for 35 years? 35 since 1984. Years. Mm-hmm. So Solomon Ludwin has technically outlived Solomon Brothers. How does that make you feel? I, it's amazing. <laughs> I would have never thought. Put that on your website. I know. But I want to take you to the way, way, way okay. back, right? To the 19... Well, when you came to this country, you were born in Honduras and your parents came to Flint. Correct. So was that for the auto industry back when it was, I remember Roger and Me, the Michael Moore documentary, and about Flint in the 1960s and the the 50s? Yeah. I think my dad's store may even be in that film, but it was, um, his store was just a few blocks from the Chevy plant. So a lot of the um, auto workers were his customers at the store. But no, they were, Mm -hmm. my parents were actually born in Palestine, just Mm -hmm. outside of Bethlehem. And... Uh, were married there, had my sister, and then migrated to Honduras. How do you make it to Honduras from the Middle mm, East? Long story. My um, my mom and dad, um, neither were raised by their parents. They huh. were raised by uh, grandparents, aunts and uncles. Um, so my dad had six siblings and parents that had migrated to Honduras when he was just a little boy, and he stayed in Palestine. So when they got married and had my sister, the war broke out around 1948, Hmm. and they said, let's go to Honduras. I want to meet my siblings and see my parents and kind of get out of the Middle East and 
They did. They they actually took. Um, they were scheduled to be on an airplane, and there were so many people fleeing the country, they weren't able to get on that plane, and that plane actually crashed that they were supposed to be on. So they went to the port and tried to get on a on a ship. Um, long story short, that ship ended up. Um, everybody drowned. Oh my gosh! In, on that ship, my. My dad's family had funerals in Honduras for my mom and dad and my sister because they had thought they were on that ship, but they didn't. They weren't able to get on that ship. They actually got on a cargo ship that took pity on them and let them come on with a newborn baby, and they eventually made their way to Honduras. To Central America. Central America. That's where his his family was, and they were pretty miserable there. Um, he was kind of a captain of the soccer team in Palestine, uh, kind of a playboy, and everybody knew him. He tap dance, and he he just did everything. And he went to Honduras, and he was he didn't have a car, and he rode a bike around everywhere. And he, you know, they immediately started having children, more children, and. They just uh, ten years later, he had fifteen hundred dollars and said, "We're going to America," and had a distant uncle in Flint, Michigan, and said, "You can open a grocery store here. I'll I'll help you get started." And he and my eldest brother came with fifteen hundred dollars. They put a down payment on a grocery store, and then my mom, with the three of us by herself, not knowing any English brought us, and uh, we lived on top of the store. And Did you recall any of that, the first few days in the United States? I can recall our first days coming from How Iran. old were you? You know, I was two and a half. It was 1978. Okay. I was I just about remember, the same age, yeah. I just remember my mom constantly sobbing. <laughs> no, well, I mean, there, there's this denial that, that yeah. it's going it's to boil over. The revolution will end. We'll go back. Right. But no, in fact, you were married to a doctor in Iran, but here you do have to go to beauty school, and we have to start all right. over again. Uh, when I think back, kind of muscle memory to, to those right. days and I came here. Yeah, I don't have a lot of memory. I remember um, I remember holidays like uh, Christmas and getting like one toy that we all, all four of us kids had to share and just, you know, how hard it was starting off and, you know, how our did first your, house living with— So how with, did your dad parlay $1,500 back then? Like how do you even get working capital or inventory, much yeah. less pay rent or do the other things you need to yeah. do to so kind of— So 1957, 1500 it wasn't a lot, but it wasn't a little either. It was enough—I um, think we had a—he had um, an uncle that had already come to Flint, and that's how he picked Flint and um, was able to get loans through the bank— with my uncle co-signing, I think, his uncle co-signing it. But yeah, it the store was literally two blocks from the Chevy plant, and right above the store was, I think, a, a two-bedroom apartment, and all the kids were in one bedroom, and my parents were in, in the other. And Gosh, if they had me as like a marketing guru back then, I wasn't alive, but I would have named it Halal by Dalal. <laughs> it was Johnny's Market. <laughs> Johnny's Market. <laughs> That's my did dad's you ever, name. <laughs> did you work the counter with him? You know, I worked um, the candy counter. I was the youngest. Uh, I was the youngest of four, and then seven years later, they had my brother John. But yeah, I worked the candy counter when I was a little older. You know, buy, uh, sell one, eat one. 
was yeah. not a good situation. And so did you get a conception of profit back then? Or when did somebody pull oh. you aside and say, this is enterprise, this is how it works? You know, I don't think it was anyone ever explaining. I just saw it all day long. Um, really, no one in my family ever worked for anybody. Everyone was an entrepreneur. Mm. Every, all, my, all my brothers, my sister, aunts, uncles, cousins, we all just have this thing about, um, yeah, just we just grow up with a certain amount of business sense and that idea that you, you control your destiny and nobody tells you how far you can go or... Yeah, that's kind of how I was raised. You'll appreciate this anecdote. I was about six years old, and we grew up in Miami, and my dad took me to Publix, and I nonchalantly took a thing of orange Tic Tacs. And uh, when we loaded the car with groceries, I offered him one. And he's like, where did you get that? I didn't buy it. I was like, no, they just give them away at the grocery store. You know, I made it up. (laughs) And he just very quietly, without saying anything, U-turned and took me back to the Publix um, customer service counter and uh, summoned the manager and said, my son, you know, took this. It's like, okay, just pay for it. Everything's like, nope, I want you to put him on the microphone. Oh, And wow. he put me on the microphone and made me say the Pledge of Allegiance and uh, apologize. And I just, I can hear my own voice shivering, you know, mm-hmm. I pledge allegiance. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, sir, you don't need to do this to him. We just take the money. He's like, nope, do it again. Say the Pledge of Allegiance. And uh, suffice to say, I never stole Tic Tacs again. But that's when I kind of, and then after that, my father would have me say the Pledge of Allegiance at birthday parties and everything. And sometime Aww. around the first grade, I started feeling like I had arrived as an American. What was your moment of kind of feeling that you were you were not as much the outsider, that you could build a head of steam here. You could really cut out an identity of your own. Oh, gosh. Probably, um, I think that came really late, later in life for me, not not a child, that like how you, how you just described. But I do understand what you were saying because I think what your dad was trying to teach you is the importance of character and integrity. And I think that was so true in my own family, like, your reputation, your character, your integrity was everything, mm. just everything. Um, more important than how much money you made or how big your house was or how nice your car was. It was it was your character that mm. was so important. But I think for me, th- I, th- I think that feeling of maybe arriving, you know, Robin, I don't even know that I still feel that. Really? Yeah. It, I, I, one, I, yeah, I don't know that. You're I one still, of the most decorated wealth know, managers in the country, but I I don't um you know, I know that I've accomplished this, but I don't know. I just feel all I've done is just work hard and do the right thing. And I think a lot of people do that. I just happen to be in an industry that um gives you awards for that. Mm. But should it really should you even get an award for just Working hard and being honest and having integrity and doing the right thing in your business. So let's put it this way. When did you know you wanted to go to college? Oh. And what did you have to do to go yeah. through college? I, I think I knew I wanted to go to college when I was about 14. Hmm. I knew that I needed to, to find my own way. Um, probably similar in your family. The, the paternal... Um, the, the, the patriarch is kind of, you know, women are kind of a second-class citizen in many ways. Well, no, my, in the Iranian parent, family, it's the Persian mother convincing the son that he's a prince. So oh, it's a little different. Okay, a little yeah, different. Ahead. So in, in yeah, it was— I told you my mom thinks I'm like the Persian George Clooney. George Clooney, But you know what? I'm talking are. way too much about myself. <laughs> this is your life, Bilal. 
Yeah, so no, when I was 14, I think that, you know, I always struggled with um, that boys were treated differently than girls. Mm. Not just in our family, but it was, you know, the 60s and 70s, and boys were treated differently than girls. And it it always, it hurt me. It stung. It just, I just felt like so, um, just an unfairness and in the injustice of mm. all that was... I really internalized a lot of that. So I knew my parents didn't want me to go away to college. They wanted me to live at home and mm. go to junior college and meet a nice boy at church and stay home until I got married. That was, I'm sure, their dream for me. Um, so I applied to Michigan State, only one college. I, it's the only college I knew. And I'm going to apply to Michigan State without them knowing and... Um, Without your parents knowing? No, I didn't tell tell them. It would have been a problem. I think they would have felt hurt that I didn't want to stay home with them. Can you imagine them. if they found your application? You, it's like that commercial. <laughs> I learned it from you, all right? I learned from watching you. So when I got accepted and um, told them that I was going to go, um, it isn't that they, they are were strong believers in education. They wanted me to have my education. Uh-huh. They just want, They felt safer with me being at home and getting it. So I told them, it's I'm going to go. I'm going to pay for it on my own. They don't need to worry about the expense of it. And um, I went. And What did I, it I cost never... that you could just get your head around paying for it on your yeah. own? So 1973, it wasn't it wasn't the, the 20, 30, 40, 50,000. Yeah, but it's oil shock period, right? The economy it, is taking a it, hit. It, it, it was. But, you know, I've managed to work all through college. Mm. And when I graduated, I didn't owe a penny. So how did you do that? What did you do? You showed up at Michigan State, I, and then I, you said, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna find a job." Did you get a job beforehand? Did you take on loans? So the my first semester, I had an academic scholarship, mm. so I was covered my first semester, and then after that, it was just I was working two or three jobs and going to school. I was waitressing. I was like you said, I was painting dorms. I was a photographer's assistant. I just I did pretty much everything, and then I opened my own store. When I was um, just beginning my junior year of college. Tell me where you waitressed. At, oh, yeah, at the Boom Boom Room. What? <laughs> it's not what you think it is, Robin. Where is the Boom Boom Room? Does the, it still exist? It's a, it was a Polynesian restaurant and drink establishment. Did you have to dress up in a tropical no, way? No. No. And what was that experience like? It was awesome. You liked it? I liked it. And you hoovered up the tips I was a good waitress. So I worked hard. I got good tips, and it was good. But no, you didn't wear any strange outfits. It was it was. And did you platoon between that and uh, painting dorms? Yeah. Would you just hang up a thing? And say, well, I painting will show dorms up and paint was all dorms? Sum- was summers. Mm-hmm. That um, was a university job. Yeah. Yeah. The the waitressing I did at evenings and weekends. How did lot. you juggle all that with your studies, having um, to maintain a GPA? Well, I'll, I will admit my GPA was not spectacular, mm. but I got by and I got a diploma. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. My GPA was not – it was hard. There were times where I, I couldn't afford the books. I had to go to the library and check them out. So, I mean, it was not easy and it was, you know, it was – yeah, I didn't have a lot of time. Not not like – you know, I think of my son that graduated from UVA um, – couple, two, three years ago. I mean, he, he was a full-time student. He worked and he graduated with high honors and he did great, but he had the time. He didn't. Mm. 
Tell me about that small biz you started. Yeah, it was um, – there were a lot of um, students at Michigan State that were in the art school that made awesome jewelry and artwork. And I had the idea that they needed a place to show their work and sell it. Um, obviously, I didn't have the money to, to buy inventory, so I took it on consignment. And it was just student art and jewelry and things like that. And I did, we actually did really well. So were you an art betrayer? Yes. What could we call you back then? I don't know. I was just uh, a hustler. <laughs> <laughs> did this put a seed in your head that this is what I'm going to do for a living? No. No. What did you think if you had to look into that crystal ball in the mid-70s where you'd be in 45 years? Oh, gosh. I thought I, I was going to become a senator or a brain surgeon mm, in various parts of my life. You know, my goal was if I could make $12,000 a year and have my own apartment, I thought it, that would that would just be awesome. But seriously. That, that was, was really it. That was it. What I didn't need that much. I just wanted not share an apartment with other people, and I thought at the time twelve thousand a year was a pretty good income. And what did you major in? Uh, business. And did you get a sense for the markets? Did they dip your feet into Nothing. the nifty fifty or no, anything back no, then? No, no, no. I had no interest. None. Really? None. I always had common sense and business sense, but I. Until I had uh, taken a job in Washington, D.C. With, with was one of the first women they hired as a financial planner. It never – that whole area never even occurred to me. But um, I was able to pick up and learn so much so quickly. Um, I won awards like – pretty almost right off the bat for productivity and all kinds of things. Um, you know, but I was very blessed that at this financial planning firm in D.C., I worked with some uh, of the older guys there, and they took me under their wing, and I was a sponge. And I just, I don't know why or how, but I was able to um, take that information and really very easily learn how to apply it. And it was, it was just, I just, I just found my niche. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Dalal Solomon. She is co-founder and CEO of Solomon Ludwin, the firm she started in 2009. It already totes about a billion dollars in client assets. And she's one of 16 advisors only who've been on the Barron's America's top women advisors list every year since the list started in 2006. What was that first job out of college? Did you take a corporate job? Like, what did you do back then? Did you send a resume around? First real job out of college, I was um, senior vice president of marketing for a furniture company in in uh, Lansing. Were your parents impressed at this point? Like, you made the right choice. I, I grant it to you. Um, Were they on your case to get married? Were they? Yeah, it was more about... Yeah, it was more about that, I think. I don't I my parents are the most remarkable, loving, wonderful people, and I'm so blessed that they were my parents because I just I I idolize both of them. My mom passed away in May, so oh. she's gone now, but my dad at 94 is still living and um 
they're just wonderful people, but they they could never really understand how I was how I was able to do what I did and kind of what I had accomplished. I was just still their little girl, and you know they would still ask me if I you know I don't know. It was it's just it was different. So Dalal, early eighties, coming off the infamous Business Week cover, death of equities. How are you pulled into the world of equities, the stock market? How did that foot get into your door, or vice versa? Well, you know, when I moved to Richmond in 1984 to start working with Wheat First Securities as a broker, financial advisor, um, yeah, it was, it, it was, and it still is for me, less about markets and more about relationships and listening to people and understanding what it is they were trying to, it's problem solving. How do I get from here to there? How do, how do I accomplish this? How do I fix this? And I think that's always been my, my forte because markets are markets. They're, they aren't really that complicated. Yeah, but somebody has to teach you about bond yields and duration and You know, you study for your Series 7 and you go through training. And so those... would you just answer a job to go work at Weed First or what pulled you well, to Richmond from yeah, Michigan? Yeah, so I was a financial planner uh-huh. in, in uh, Washington, D.C., and I was recruited by Wheat First in Richmond and came down and interviewed. And so did they educate you in the whole financial planner thing, did. Series 7, Series 63, they all did. that jazz? They did. A, they had – back in the day, they had really good training programs. Wheat mm-hmm. especially had – it was a year almost of uh-huh. ongoing training in classroom, studying material. I mean it, it Did was, you have to cold call in your first job? Absolutely. To say, hey, I noticed you had a liquidity event. Can we talk to you about? No, you you never knew who had a liquidity event. It was how would you even? It was um, for me. My cold calling was to usually small businesses. So my cold call went something like calling the the head of a company, a small company, and say, "Hey, I'm new in the Richmond area. I don't really know many people." I was doing financial planning in Washington, D.C., now with Wheat First Securities. And I really want to meet some business people and stop by, introduce myself. I'd really like to just drop off my card and just see if there's anything I can help you with. You didn't need to provide a steak dinner or anything like that? No. Oh, gosh. No, I didn't have the money for that. I was taking a bus to work. Really? Oh, yeah. And you were expected to build a book of business. Were you chiefly on commission? completely on commission. So there was no salary at this Um, job. I think the first year you were on a really low base and then they wean you off of that. I think it was after a year, maybe a year and a half. I got to get in your head. How was that attractive to you when you were recruited from the Beltway area? It takes a special kind of person. No, I love that. The Iranians, they say, our our trademark uh, uh, (laughs) attribute is taruf. Like we couldn't bother to ask. We couldn't bother to go in and, you know, ask for the transaction Mm -hmm. or something like that. You'd have to... Um, it would have to be done so parenthetically that you'd waste all this time. You actually enjoyed going in and making the pitch and seeking the assets? I enjoyed going in and getting to know people and figuring out figuring out what their issues were and where I could fit in to help solve those issues. And I think that at the time was very different from what my 
colleagues in the bullpen were doing because they were picking up the phone and selling the next hot stock. Mm. And I had no interest in doing that. So my interest was let me form relationships with people. Let me find out about them. Let me figure out what it is they're trying to accomplish and let me be their problem solver. Let me create that roadmap for them. When did you finally build a head of steam in that business and say, yes, this is working. This really works for me. Like I have enough of a book of business that I can scale this. Um, Probably at the end of five years, the the 28 people that were in my training class, I think there were only three of us left in the business. And they'd have to survive the crash of 87 too. Right. Obviously. Right. And which is a mass extinction event for a lot of firms and brokers. So I think after the five years, I started to realize like I I could I am I, I could be really good at this, but I have to do it differently. I had a lot of pressure on me at the time to just sell, 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 sell the stock, sell the bond, sell the C D. So I had a very slow start because I wasn't selling anything. Mm-hmm. I was building relationships, and I was problem-solving for people. So how did it work during the performance review? And I, I'm going to fast-forward you to the financial crisis and everything that's transpired since. But when they'd call you in, I was like, you're just not producing enough. You're not cross-selling enough. Right. You're not – how would you push back at that? I that was the structure of, of the sell yeah, side back I had then. a lot of those meetings, and I had a lot of yelling matches. And I'm pretty good at making a case for myself. So, yeah, I yelled right back. I said, yeah, half of these people are probably going to be gone, and I'm still going to be here because the people that are work with me are going to work with me for the next 20, 30, 40 years. Mm. And um, at the time, the the branch manager, Shelly Rubin, mm. um, I think he just really believed in me. I, I think he, you know, without being overtly like saying it, I, I think he let me hang on long enough to prove that I could do it. What happened to Wheat? For, was Wheat first Butcher Singer, Evergreen, Wells, Wachovia? Oh I don't even know who ended up owning it. Which of the big firms Wells last Fargo. owned it? Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo. And you were last affiliated with Wells Fargo. Correct. You, you went off quasi-independently in 2009. Solomon and Ludwin was in the Wells Fargo network, but you Correct. guys uh, broke off from them last fall. Yes. I know we're fast forwarding, but let's go back to 2009. How did you start this firm in the teeth of the worst financial crisis and market yeah. calamity of our lifetimes? Yeah. So like I said, when I told my branch manager after five years that my clients would be with me for 30 and 40 years, that's ended up being true. I have this, I, I still have the same clients I had in for the ones that are still living in 1984. So when everything started to go down – when the, during the, the Great Recession, sure. almost depression. Um, yeah, that was a hard time to leave, but it was the best time for us because Dan and I— Dan Ludwin, your Dan partner, Ludwin, was going to come on partner, in a few minutes. Um, we looked at each other, and we realized people are not working with us because of Wells Fargo. They're working with us because of us. The relationship is with us— and what we really need to do was kind of take the shackles off of us and really develop a business that spoke directly to the needs of the clients we were serving, not to the needs of 
a big bank or a big brokerage firm. But Dalal, you had enough confidence. And I'm thinking back to my mindset in 2009. Everything is in free fall. People are terrified. If you mm. remember, because we're, <laughs> we're talking the market hits another high this week, but the S&P hits its ominous low at 666, Six. right? And we're now at S&P 3000. Like people are talking about it all of a sudden, like it was unthinkable. And I had colleagues at Business Week pulling me aside saying, you're a young kid. My parents survived the depression. We're going to be eating cat food in a year. The market returned to 1996 levels and it was like a complete lost decade and, and people were capitulating left and right. And yet you were starting anew. Yeah. Well, first of all, the way that we had most of our clients allocated, they did not experience as much of a drop than they than than perhaps they could have. Yeah, the peak drawdown from peak to trough was fifty six percent between two thousand seven and March of two thousand nine. For the most part, we're not even close to that wow. because of the allocation that we had. Is that cold comfort though? Say you you turn to a client or, or an investment manager or something. After the year's over, it's like, you know, we're only down 30% when the market's down 42%. Do they care? Here's the difference, though, Robin. The way that we had our clients situated is that what they needed to pay their bills every month and to live did not change. Mm. So we were never in a position with most of our clients where we were forced to sell securities that had been hammered down in order for them to pay their bills. So we had the wherewithal to be able to, to, to sit through it. They were still collecting everything they needed to collect to pay their bills, so their lifestyles were not changing. And then when the markets recovered, they, they recovered along with it. So that's where really understanding how to build portfolios, how to create the right cash flow, how to understand every client situation makes a difference. So were they down? Of course they were down. Were they down 58%? No, but they were still down, and it was still hard to get those statements. But did their lifestyle change? No. And that's the beauty of working with an advisor that understands what your needs are, what your what your cash flow requirements are, and how to um, – how to design the portfolio to create that peace of mind. So yes, markets are down, looks crappy on paper, and you want to kill yourself, but you don't have to sell anything to pay your bills. And that's that's a big relief. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are joined in studio by Dalal Maria Solomon, CEO and founding partner of Solomon Ludwin. She's been at it now for 10 years since the worst of the financial crisis. And joining us as well is Dan Ludwin, her partner, the president and founding partner, uh, the partner in crime, uh, this $1 billion client assets under management shop that's been decorated by Barron's and Forbes and the FT. How are you, sir? I'm wonderful. How are you? Well, I'm great. I think Dalal is self-effacing when I go back to the experience of saying... Starting a business like this while Wall Street is falling apart and we don't know which banks are going to be recapitalized, I cannot imagine doing that in 2009 when you guys did. Or maybe there is something liberating to say, well, if it's all burning up behind us, we kind of have nothing to lose anyway. I think there was a sense of that because every weekend, every Friday, you'd go home wondering if your company at the time, Wachovia, would survive the weekend. Right? I mean, you had Merrill Lynch, you had Countrywide. You had Lehman Brothers. I mean, the, the list is too long to remember. 
There was a silent run on Wachovia, if I remember. There was. There was. And there was a, a forced marriage. Citigroup very nearly bought Wachovia, but then it was Wells yep. that shacked up. So it's like East Coast and West Coast. I think that we had lived through so many name changes uh, from wheat to first wheat union. first union to first union. Butcher, singer, evergreen. Gosh. Yeah. I mean, just, they, I mean, the business card printers are the winners in this, in this yeah. thing. Um, but I think it was that, that kind of final push to Wachovia where we were like, you know, this, this is, this is not, we don't want our reputation to be attached to this kind of an environment. And as Dalal had said earlier, I think we did realize over time that it, they're working with us, not with the entity behind us. You know, I spoke to, uh, it was Mohammed El Arian at PIMCO back then, which was just hoovering in money because it had the biggest bond fund in the world. And they had coined, I believe it was the spring of 2009, the new normal, that things were obviously going to be very different this time. Uh, companies were going to have to recapitalize their balance sheets by selling equity. It was going to be another period of just subdued losses. It was easy to kind of talk that book because it felt like there was no bottom underneath this. Like the United States had finally, that bill was finally presented to us and we'd have to pay for it. And yet the Fed did go to zero interest rate policy and then some and kept printing money on top of it. And equities turned out to be, in hindsight, in 2020 hindsight, it was a once in a lifetime opportunity to kind of get in. I saw a stat by Charlie Bellello of um, uh, Pension Partners. If I can share it with you here, he said, with the Dow hitting 27,000 for the first time, let's go back to other milestones. It first crossed 15,000 in 2013. In 2007, it crossed 14,000. Going back to uh, 1996, it crossed 6,000. And we were back at 1996 levels. Um, and yet it's a weird period. And yet people are not pulling me aside at cocktail parties and talking about this market. He also noted the S&P 500 this week hits 3,000 for the first time. That's an all-time high. The Dow an all-time high, the NASDAQ, an all-time high, the U.S. economy, longest expansion in history, uh, the Fed chairman, Powell, his testimony, dovish, not leaving if fired by Trump, the Fed cutting rates in three weeks. Mm. That is a strange normal, isn't it? It seems like a fake normal. And that's one of the things that we talk about. Um, it's all those things that you just listed and the fact that people aren't in the streets celebrating how wonderful things are, I think, is a great example of we're still scared. If, if you think about interest rates, you think about the money that's been printed. I mean, Germany still has negative interest rates uh, 10 years after the fact. So in this massive expansion, a lot of economies, including Germany, you talk about the Scandinavian economies, people actually have to pay these governments to give them money. So that's a strange thing in light of expansions. It's not a depression. It, to me, we have been – and we talked about this a, a while back. I think that we have become addicted to this stimulus globally. And you know, you look at what happened in the fourth quarter of, of 2018 with a 20 to 30 percent decline rapidly in almost all markets. None of that was fundamentally driven. That was – you could say it was some trade deal things. But at the end of the day, I think that was the fear that – the Fed was going to continue to raise rates because they talked about raising them three to four more times in 2019 and even cutting or reducing their balance sheets. Market sells off panics. And what does the Fed do like they've been doing? They come to the rescue. 
Maybe we won't raise that is, rates. That is a very strange codependency. That's a very worrying, worrisome codependency it's to meet the law. Worrisome. Because before we started this in 2007, and I always talk about going back and looking at the Fed minutes in 2007 in the spring. Oh, it's all right. We do see some softening in real estate, but nobody saw the systemic asteroid that was about to crash into Wall Street, right? And that's mixing 10 metaphors. I understand, but I do that a lot. <laughs> um, and then they take rates down to zero by the end, effectively by the end of 2008, from five and a quarter percent to zero. Yeah. We're now, I, I ticked off all those statistics, full expansion, 3.8% unemployment, record markets, unbelievable, you know, speculators are back in the property market. You've seen the bond market, you've seen the junk bond market, debt issuance, artwork, all the asset bubbles everywhere. And yet we're at about two and a quarter percent in Fed funds. And I understand this is supposed to be done in inflation adjusted terms, but we have nowhere normalized the cost of capital. Do you know what I'm saying without getting wonky? Yeah. People have taken for granted that the Fed is and other central banks are always going to be there to throw you cheap money. So what happens when they're not? But the problem with this is I've when we brought guests on and talking about this, it's always been theoretical and chicken little for so many years. What happens when they don't? What happens when they don't? What happens when the bond vigilantes come back? I was around to see the death of equity, son. <laughs> Let me tell you about the nifty 50, son. Let me tell you about the gold standard, son. You know, you sound like at some point, you know, it's a little yeah. – it, it's, it's a cry wolf problem, and I'm really worried about that complacency. I am, like many people, when markets get this frothy, I get really worried. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not just that markets are frothy. To us, what, what's worrisome is the magnitude of what's been done over the last 10 years and the fact that we're basically still full throttle after 10 years and that when we start to uh, – lower one gear in this stimulus, the market seems to panic. And that, that to me is very troublesome. You know, everyone always says, oh, this time it's different. This is different. This has never, ever, ever been done remotely in the scale that it's been done globally. And there's no, um, there's no book that's been written on this as to how to undo this. And not just that, but the Trump administration succeeded in throwing in a massive stimulus in the wake of full employment and record mm -hmm. markets and everything. And at the same time, the Fed's going to be cutting again. I, I, I don't understand the – I don't think there's been any near precedent in history. Yes, there are some exogenous things, Deutsche Bank, the trade war stuff, which is a bit self-inflicted. But um, you need to have a certain level of interest rates in there for you to be able to cut when there is a true emergency. And we saw what happened when there's nothing left and you have to make up policy options as the Federal Reserve did. I mean, from that question, um, and, and people don't lament enough, I think, that it's been a lost decade for savers. If you were a person who uh, does behave and just wanted to have a reasonable rate above inflation to get on your checking account or savings account, you can't yeah. speculate, you can't invest, nobody's been shedding a tear for you. Which is really sad. I, I think – I. Personally, I think that um, that's created a situation where you are so much rewarded to take on so much risk, much more so than what people probably should be taken on because there's no other game in town. Where are you going to put your money? So, you know, in our firm, we need to understand the difference between assets at risk and assets not at risk. And we need to really, really understand from our client's standpoint, how much risk can they, can they, should they be taking and can they afford to take? Because 
it makes it very, there's so much pressure on us as advisors um, to, um, to get a return, and you're not going to get a return in fixed income. You're just not. There's no, the, the interest rates don't, uh, are, are not playing ball with us on that. So um, at the same time, you have to be cognizant of the fact that when things do turn downward, People are going to be caught really unaware. They're not going to under. They're not going to understand that they've had way too much in the market. So when the Fed keeps its finger on the scale for so long, or keeps easy, super easy for so long, you start to see a level of. We've talked about it before. I think um, certain companies were issuing fifty-year debt. The University of Pennsylvania came out with a hundred-year bond. Argentina was back in the bond markets because there's this 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 global chase for yield. And even some people on the show have told us that. When this kind of thing happens, you can even look at high dividend paying quality stocks as effectively corporate bonds. And I think that kind of revisionism gets dangerous. When you can't find Very. any satisfaction in a risk-free yield, you start looking elsewhere. It is another form of stimulus to make all other options so insignificant in your long-term strategy that you have to start looking at uh, stocks for yield. I mean, if I can buy a, a good high quality stock that's earning twice what the 10-year is, that's, what the ten -year that's treasury crazy. Is. How do you talk to investors about bonds? Because there's always the whole finance 101 and the efficient frontier thing. They're saying you should always have, even if, you know, the, the it might be coldly comforting to get a little bit less than inflation on a treasury security that's kept artificially uh, expensive right now, and the yield is down so much. But you'll have your vindication when everything crashes and you're liquid enough to buy something. Does that? It's been hard because if you think about it, we've basically been up until the last, uh, the final quarter of 2018, we've been on pretty much a straight up run, as you said, from 666 to, you know, I think we got to 2800 before the correction. It's called the devil's flash, you know, 666. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's, it felt 3, like so, so you know, I think that without that kind of volatility, trying to impose discipline on diversification and cash flow has been really, really difficult, and it's been a really long time. Uh, so we were glad to see some volatility present itself, uh, but I think that the challenge is, when you think about it, trying to do what's right for the clients and having the clients not understand or f how quickly they can forget what the 08, 09 experience was like is part of the challenge that we have. I mean, forgetfulness, that people people don't remember that there were bond bear markets. It's been mm -hmm. going on now for 35 years, right? Um, we yeah. talked to people before that said even the bond traders that are brought on, the institutional memory on Wall Street just isn't there. So I, I wonder about the challenge of actually client handholding of the various generations of people you see, either retirees or people who are about to sell a business, uh, people who are transferring assets to a younger generation. How do you even get them to be circumspect? That's what they pay us for, right? That's our job. Um, a lot of what we do is education and helping them understand the risk in the portfolio. Um, so I, I, I don't think we can shy away from that. It's hard, but... That is what we do. That's what we get paid for. At the end of the day, I think one of the things, and we've been saying this phrase or th this combination of words for a long time, but it used to be kind of stocks, bonds, and cash. And now we say stocks and not stocks. Really? 
because it's yeah. it's it's almost like the portion that isn't in stocks is a known self-inflicted wound, but it is sometimes better to earn little to nothing than it is to have it all exposed to we've potential said return demise. of capital versus return on capital. That's correct. And being liquid to see yourself through a situation like a 2009, where if people did have cash on the sidelines and they were um, had a stomach of steel enough to get in, that they were vindicated and then some. Do you see opportunities right now in that international has kind of had a lost decade? When clients talk to you about international, are you saying that, yes, you should dabble in emerging or Europe is over its worst? Or do you think that uh, you know U.S. multinationals are a good proxy for international exposure? Well, I think one of the things that Dalal said in the in the earlier part was we really don't worry about the markets as much. Um, diversification to us still is important. You got to have a little bit in everything. I think that um, the emerging markets I think of as a spice. Right? I think of uh, large company domestic stocks as more the kind of sub- substantial Meat portion of the yeah the mm. the basic stuff. And I think that. Um, People like spices until you put too much in there. Mm. And, um, you know, emerging markets in particular, I always describe as a love-hate kind of relationship. You know, it's up 163% in 18 months coming out of the the Great Recession, and it has done literally nothing since then, but with 30 to 50% swings. So, yes, I think there is a place for it. I think that... um, I think that it, it it was a hot dot for a while, and I think that it uh, in small doses is an appropriate thing. It is probably more of an opportunity upside-wise than I would argue the U.S. markets are because if you look at over almost any time period, developed international and emerging markets relative to domestic stocks, domestic stocks are way higher. The valuations just are have been off the charts for a while, and Crazy. everybody's been sounding caution, and that this this uh, you know this chasm will have to narrow, but it just hasn't happened yet. But I'm old enough to remember that this is what people were saying in the aughts when the United States had its lost decade. It effectively did nothing from 2000 to 2009, had its worst decade since the Great Depression, and in fact, it was emerging that had a great decade, right? right? Uh, and and then even within the United States, small and mid and other assets, are you a believer in alternative assets, private equity, or when clients come to you and say, I need to have hard assets, I need to have real estate? Or how do you talk to them about gold, for example? Yeah, we, um, as far as alternative assets, um, transparency is key for us. If we if, if an investment is not transparent, if we don't know what they're investing in, what they're paying themselves, um, those, are, those are things we're just not comfortable with. For most of our clients, they've worked really, really hard to amass what, they've, what they have, and um, it's our responsibility to invest that um, very prudently. So a lot of alternatives, we, we really don't know what they're investing in and what they're paying themselves. So we, we kind of take that right off the uh, table. It is alleged, Dalal Solomon, that on this uh, stately headquarters of yours on Gaskins Road in Henrico <laughs> County, uh, this old, is it an old savings and loan? Manufacturer's Hanover or something? Yeah. It was one of the things that was there, but mostly banks. Okay. And so there's a huge bank vault in it. Yes. And within this, this ironclad 10-inch wall thing, there's a black box that has your secret technology recipe. Can you <laughs> let us in on any of that? How do you use technology? Yeah. Dan, talk about that because Dan was a big part in developing a lot of 
our technology. We, we do have a patent on, um, on the logic that like runs. Like a flux capacitor? Uh, yes, it's, it's amazing. 1.21 gigawatts, need to, You need to come to the vault and we'll show you. Technology has done some amazing things for us. I can't speak for others, but you know, I think that it has made us better communicators with clients. I think that it's made us uh, more aware of our clients and their what makes them tick, what makes them individual. I, mean, I think that's a big part of what we do is to really understand them in deep and meaningful ways. But it's also helped us uh, try to understand the markets and and to impose our value proposition or our beliefs in the ways that we want to invest money ourselves and for clients in a more scalable way. So, you know, doing this on Excel or doing this on a, uh, a piece of yellow legal paper would be literally impossible. Um, so technology has allowed us to, to do all sorts of wonderful things um, to help the way we manage and to help deepen and broaden relationships. What do you guys think about this move toward kind of welcome to the machine robo-advisors that take human thought and uh, biases out of it, that you've seen such a push over the past several years, especially with the boom in indexing, that uh, we're told that millennials and the, the the millionaires who work at Google and Facebook and others are throwing money at robo-advisors. Love it. Really? Absolutely. Um, because I, th I think that what this is going to do is it's actually going to thin out our industry. Our industry has way too many people in it. There are way too many financial advisors. That's They could be selling stocks or cars or encyclopedias, though most people don't know what those are anymore. Um, but the stuff that's getting moved around now is fungible. It's index, indexes and ETFs. We're not talking about stock picking anymore. Right. We're not talking about calling your broker, putting points on a thing. I mean, that's really 1984 vintage Wall Street. This to me is is the inflection point that Dalal realized in 1984 and the arguments that she got into with the branch manager. Right? This is one of those moments where people in 1984 that were making cold calls, right, trying to sell ideas – didn't realize that they were already falling behind the curve. And I think people in our position today who hang their hats on simply asset allocation or diversification or even basic financial planning are going to get beaten by computers. Hal is going to beat them. What about this supposed general generational shift we're told about? You know, Gen X and baby boomers still hold, you know, trillions and trillions of assets. Like there's this fabled $30 trillion wealth transfer that's about to happen. I'm sure you and your son Jacob talk about mm -hmm. it. He's following in your footsteps. Mm -hmm. He graduates from college. But uh, a lot of these uh, kids that came of age in the financial crisis and seeing their parents lose jobs and not being hireable themselves or having to live with their parents have this really this, this deep-seated mistrust of the market. And understandably so. I mean, I, I get that. I, I sometimes have a distrust for the market. Um, that's why for us it's, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier, it isn't – I don't think the markets are this big mystery. I just don't. I, I think it's really – robos could do it. I think the difference – I think a financial advisor today's value proposition isn't just the investments, just the asset allocation. It's really knowing their clients, understanding what they're trying to accomplish. It's tax minimization. It's cash flow management. It's estate planning. It's 
all those other things combined together are a huge value proposition for most people. The investments in the asset allocation is actually a really small part of what's really important to most people. And I don't think that's the hardest part. I, I think with um, index funds and ETFs and, I mean, it's, it isn't, and I just don't think you have to be a rocket scientist so from to a figure gut, that from part out. From a gut check perspective, you guys and I have talked in the past about risk amnesia, how people have really, truly, understandably repressed the awful memories of, of the 55% drawdown from 2007 mm-hmm. to 2009. What happened uh, in the final quarter of 2018 when we saw this very short live 19 20% you know, correction, bear market, where people calling you left and right like, oh, no, it's happening again. What's happening? That's a great question because I think we've talked about our trigger point strategy, the, the triggers that go off, buy low, sell high. We had our biggest buys in, back into the market, and our biggest buy was December 24th at the bottom of the market. That's the logic that we use on our How do you do strategy. that? Do you call these people like, listen, no, this is the moment we've no, been waiting we for. We don't call. They're discretionary. They, they, they are in our model portfolios using our logic, and it's just an automatic So buy. they are trained or they are inured enough at this mm-hmm. point to know to not call you and say, sell everything and get me out of no, this. No, our clients, when the markets are down, would be calling us and saying, please tell me we're buying because they know that's how our strategy works. We're, we're gradually selling as markets are become too lofty. Was the black box waking you up at night? Was it paging you? It was, was calling it like my name your and saying, bye, bye, bye. But no. Dalal, um, I'd like to talk to you. Yes. it's. Um, <laughs> I'm very disappointed, That's Dan. right, though, Dan. 20, uh, December 24th, I think, was our... Worst Christmas Eve ever in the history of the stock market. And that was, that was our, our biggest, biggest buy. Day. That's it was great. actually our final buying day because down 25%, which is all of our markets except for one got down 25%. Um, yeah, it was it, it was weird. We actually were almost high-fiving during October and December because it's been so long since we've experienced that. People had forgotten that the market can actually but go down. But we were prepared for it and we had cash available from profits – so what we used to buy into the markets when they were down was money that we had gotten from profits. That's an awfully hard discipline to teach to people. You hear Warren Buffett saying that he's greedy when others are fearful. You That's... hear about <laughs> Rothschild and blood on the streets. And you hear about the you know the story with Joe Kennedy and the shoeshine boy at Grand Central. When he asked him about stocks, he sold out of everything. But if we don't have – and we've been deprived in this artificial environment of Fed stimulus of reminders that things can and do fall apart. That's table stakes for the stock market. But over time, people tend to get into this more new paradigm thinking thing like, oh, it's different this time, right? I mean I know that's beyond cliche. But they do kind of say, well, there used to be a Greenspan put and now it's a Powell put. Look, we're at ebullient stock markets, full employment, everything, and the Fed's going to keep throwing us uh, sirloin. Let's hope they do. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. We we want the markets to go up, right? We're not betting against them. But I think that our whole premise, and always has been, and I hope always will be, is that nothing goes up forever and nothing goes down forever. And the beauty of indexing and the, the one powerful thing that it's done is it's made the ability to buy into markets, plural, or stocks, plural, uh, much, much easier. And- far quicker, which is both good and bad. 
You guys have a couple of minutes to close me out. Talk to me, freestyle, free skate. What should I have asked you? What did you want to talk about? The, the thing that th really scares me, worries me, is much like you talked about a generation being skeptical of the stock market. You think of the people that had parents, watched their, their parents in 2000 through 2002 and or 2008 through 2009 lose money, lose jobs in very formidable years in their lives. I think that those kinds of scars, like a Great Depression, right? We talk about depression kids, right? And we still have some where it's – they are different. They are wired differently. You wonder if that generation that experienced that as kids – will kind of keep that in their back pocket and say, I don't, I know I need to be in it, but I don't trust it as much as perhaps other generations have. I'm worried that we are now creating another generation that expects the world to just someone snap a finger or lower interest rates or print more money to just fix the problem. There's no magic pill, but it, it's like we're trying to create one. How's that $12,000 a year working out for you, Dalal? I'm making it. <laughs> She's got her own apartment. I'm, I'm That's making the good news. it, Robin. Making it. I got the... uh, you know what? I cannot thank you guys enough. This is a great story and that I, I love that I have to drag you on this show, that you don't kind of willfully, you're not out there, you know, hiring a publicist, telling Forbes and Barron's and all these other places to come after you. You've done it and you've done it quietly in 2009 was a lifetime ago, but uh, here you are at a, at a billion dollars in assets under management. Right? Yeah. And she is one of the shyest people you'll meet. So I, I, I do give you a lot of credit because um, she, she, did, she, she, she did things today and has done things with you in the past that not a lot of people can make her open up and talk and be as comfortable. That's why I get paid the big bucks, Dan. <laughs> if only I had uh, money to fork over to Solomon Ludwin. I cannot thank you enough. Thank you, Robin. Thank you. It's always great to see you. Dalal Solomon and Dan Ludwin of Solomon and Ludwin. Always welcome on this show. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. This show airs on NPR member station 88.9 WCVE News on NPR.org and on iTunes at link fullDRadio.com. Don't just like us. Love us. We are no-load, highly liquid audio fiduciaries who will hold your hands through boom and bust alike. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. Music